What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, man, boy, I'm excited about this talk. Um, it's rare that you find, uh, man, some material that is surprising on every single page, you guys. And this book is that. Uh, it's called A Man of Two Faces, and it's called A Memoir, A History, A Memorial. It really is a lot of different things. It's kind of like a almost a narrative, poem, stream of consciousness, stand-up routine, conversation. It's like a lot of these things in one book. Bravo to Viet Yin. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, author of The Sympathizers, some of you may remember, and a professor at USC. Welcome to Black on the Air. Hey, Larry. Glad to be here with you. It's so great to have you here, especially with all that's going on these days. <laughs> you know, it's nice to, to talk about uh, a book like this that is a, it's such a different take on one's journey, I guess you could say. Because you always wonder, why does somebody write a memoir? What's the purpose of it? It doesn't like go into directions. It pulls from directions and pulls us in in an interesting way. Um, what, how did you decide upon the style uh, for this book? Well, you know, I never wanted to write a memoir because I, I thought my uh -huh. life was pretty boring, personally. You know, <laughs> and, uh, That's what people with the interesting lives always think, by the way. <laughs> and the people with like uninteresting lives write memoirs. Like, why do oh. I need a celebrity memoir, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I thought my parents' lives were the interesting ones, and we'll get to their yeah. experiences and everything. But I'm oftentimes bored by memoirs because they start mm -hmm. from A to Z, you know, and, and uh, they, they have a very conventional form and all of that. And uh, I wanted to be very playful with the memoir, and I wanted mm -hmm. to get into my inner child because I became a father not too long ago, a few years ago. And I never wanted to be a father, and not everybody should be a father. I think there's a good, good mm. of your audience who shouldn't be parents. We don't know who they are. But I became one and I was actually, I'm actually pretty good at it, I think. And oh. 
A little, a little dad flex here. A little dad flex here. No, <laughs> wait for 20 years and see what my kids say. <laughs> yes. Right. But you know, my kids are very playful. And so when I'm reading children's literature, yeah. there are no rules. I mean, and kids will go along with whatever is on the page. Yeah. Are adults so constrained, for example, when it comes to a memoir that it has mm-hmm. to look a certain way. So when I wrote the memoir, I just really wrote from intuition and from deep feeling. And so that gives you a, a, a book that um, it is prose, but there are parts that look like poetry and then sure. that have, you know, big font. And so I played around with things, but I don't think it's hard to read. I think it's pretty easy. No, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It, uh, I always said books like this, you don't, you don't get, uh, you don't learn about something as much as you get what I call a gestalt of something, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you come to feelings about these things because of the way that it's written. I think more than you get information, which I think is, that's what makes the power of this book. You know, uh, you go, Oh, wow. Like you're, you're feeling some of these things you're talking about, you know, where most things, as you say, you go, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that happened. Oh, that's interesting. And I think it's because you're taking jabs in the present while you're taking us into the past. You know, you know for me to become a writer, uh, you know, part of what I had to do, um, was learn how to feel. <laughs> if the yeah. writer doesn't feel anything, so he's not going to feel anything, right? Oh God, I can relate to that. Oh yeah, like with comedy too, and so on. But um, you know, that's terrifying because if it you is. want the reader to cry, if you want the reader to feel sad, you have to feel these things. And and at the core of it, I think that that is what uh, powerful memoirs should hopefully be about. You know, um, that's why I wish for your audience that most people out there don't feel the need to write a memoir because if you really do terrible has probably happened to you um and so writing the memoir was was a lot of it is about various ideas and so on but but really at the core was me trying to feel my feelings and Mm -hmm. to you know uh confront everything that happened to my parents and to me geez to this country and my parents lives in in vietnam uh which was you know they were that those experiences were deeply meaningful to me. And then I spent my, most of my life running away from that horror of trauma and feeling to become an American and to become seemingly well-adjusted. Um, I think my first glimpse that I wasn't well-adjusted was when I told my wife, I'm, I'm a pretty normal person, right? <laughs> said, no, you are not. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the book uh, really seems to be about trauma, uh, both uh, individual trauma and cultural trauma. And you're coming to terms with even talking about it. It seems to me like there are many immigrant groups and I'll put yours in one of them that it seems like they don't talk a lot about things, you know, (laughs) things, messy things and that. It it feels like parts of you feel like you're betraying a little bit by even wanting to think about talking about some of these things or is that, was there a conflict in even approaching some of this material? And do you, do you feel that? Cause you say it's hard for you to, to feel some things. Does it feel like you're betraying something when you're going into these areas? Absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, when, when someone writes a memoir, it's obviously about you, but there, you have other people in your lives, life, hopefully, right? So you have to betray yourself. I mean, I think at the core of the memoir, a memoir that only betrays other people is not very interesting, but a memoir that, that betrays yourself, that's really what needs to take place. So a mm. lot of the memoir is about investigating me and my own repression and denial of various kinds of memories of terrible things that happened to my family, but it's also about uh, my parents and what they went mm-hmm. through. They never agreed to participate in a book about themselves, you know, so when I'm revealing things that happened to my parents, uh, that is a betrayal, I think, in some ways. You know, a good memoirist has to confront that, um, has to confront that messy intersection between truth and betrayal. Um, Don't run away from it. You have to go into it. 
And that's true, not just for our families and ourselves, but uh, in relationship to our communities, whatever those communities happen to be. So I really Mm -hmm. want to investigate myself and my family, but also Vietnam and the United States, my two countries, and our Mm -hmm. complicated histories and our contradictions and our messiness. And when you um, come as a refugee to the United States or as an immigrant, the the story you're expected to tell is one of gratitude. Thank you Mm -hmm. uh, for rescuing us from whatever horror that uh, Americans think exist out there beyond their borders. Uh, um, refugees and immigrants are not ex- expected to also say, but you know, we wouldn't have needed to be aided <laughs> in the United States if we hadn't been invaded in the first place. And so this book gets into some of that, that what I think of as that truth that some Americans would feel as a betrayal or, you know, yeah, of the country. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack in that, which the book uh, definitely comes at from different uh, points of view. Did you, did your parents ever speak to you directly about their experiences or or what Vietnam was like, or did you have to research that? Well, you mentioned that um, the Vietnamese refugee community, which I grew up in, tends to mm-hmm. be quiet about things. Right. And in some ways, that's very true. You know, uh, like the way that I think a lot of Vietnamese refugees survived their war experiences and then coming as refugees to this country was to look forward and not look back, right? So mm-hmm. they didn't want to talk about the, the trauma of their individual lives. So a lot of families that I've encountered, Vietnamese refugee families, the kids and the grandkids will say, you know, the, the older folks just didn't talk about the past. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, there was this contradiction because there was one that they were also very publicly focused on the past as well. So there's a lot of anti-communism and being fixated on the war and the end of the war. And so what that meant for my own family was oftentimes there, there was nothing about the past. My parents wouldn't talk about the past. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some horrifying story would come, would pop out of my mom's mouth, you know, and I was nine or 10 or whatever young age. And I just didn't know how to deal with hearing a story about, you know, a dead child on a doorstep that my mother saw when she was a child. Like yeah. that image interrupted my American lifestyle. Um, and so there was that, yeah, there was that real tension between um, uh, not speaking about the past and then just having the past overwhelm us at certain moments. Did your parents express gratitude to you for being in America? Did they feel like they're in a better place, even though it's not home? Or did they feel like, you know, did they have a longing to be home? What Did they have a relationship with those two places that, you know, of course you had a different relationship, but what what could you see was their relationship? Did they ever share that with you? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, we, my parents are devout Catholics and right. the only entity they ever thanked was God. Thank God. <laughs> you know, that are, yeah. all the good things that have happened to us. They never, I don't think, thanked the United States, at least not to me. They never said that. But they did become American citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was their expression of, well, we recognize that we need to belong to this country in some way. But when I was growing up, my parents were telling telling me often, told me often, you are 100% Vietnamese. Mm. That's actually very common for refugees and immigrants. You know, when you when they come to a new country, yeah. they know they're being changed. They know their kids are being changed, but they want to resist. They want to re- retain the old country, and that was the way my parents did it. And so, they whenever they said Americans, they were talking about other people, not about us. Uh, but then, um, in nineteen ninety four wow. ninety five, when the United States reestablished relations with Vietnam, and my parents had been away, had been away for about twenty years, mm-hmm. they had the first opportunity to go back to Vietnam. And then they spent a couple of weeks there visiting relatives. They came back and over Thanksgiving, my father said, 
we're Americans now. Wow. You know, I, I think wow. they meant with what that meant to be American, but mm-hmm. over time, I think they just had no choice but to recognize in some factual way that they are a part of this country. And, you know, your book, of course, is called Man of Two Faces. And, you know, part of what, you know, your experience, what you talk about, I mean, I'm not an immigrant, but, you know, as black Americans, we've always felt like, you know, my, my phrase was like, I feel like I'm at a family reunion, but I'm not in the family. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It was that type of feeling. So you felt different than your parents, but there's a lot of similarities too. But I think you guys are trading off your Americanness and not always lining up with each other about that, right? Because I think you talk about, you kind of felt like a spy sometimes, like in your own house or out in the world for different reasons, right? Yeah. And I think there's overlaps in some way between different so minority experiences in this country. So I've been deeply influenced by Black literature, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, double consciousness. It applies in some yeah. to a lot of refugees and immigrants. And then Ralph Ellison, an invisible man, talks about being a spy, his narrator. That's right. So when I was growing up, I again, my parents telling me you're 100% Vietnamese, but I felt like an American because I was growing up watching American TV, American movies, all this kind exactly. of stuff. Yeah. And so I felt like an American spying on my parents and the Vietnamese refugee community. But then when I stepped out into the rest of the American world, I felt like a Vietnamese person spying on Americans. And so that kind of duality and division is so common, I think, in so many refugee and immigrant communities, certainly among Vietnamese and Asian Americans. Um, it's normal, I think. And so it's a challenge to all of us who've gone through it to figure out, well, what kind of choices are we going to make about who we are and where do we belong, etc. Um, yeah. And so uh, I, fa- I found my life, again, to be kind of boring. So I took those feelings and I put them into a real spy in my novel, um, The Sympathizer. You also have a relationship with uh, memory in this book, which I, I find kind of interesting because once again, individual cultural memory, that sort of thing. And I think you mentioned that there's certain things you don't remember, but then the question is, but do you, is it in there somewhere? <laughs> like, can, can memory be reliable with trauma present? Um, uh- I don't think so. Mm-hmm. One definition of trauma is that you've been affected by something so deeply, you never right. get it. But you also can't tell a linear story right. about it. You can't go beginning, middle, end because you're caught by the trauma. And so you just go in circles, right? You're, you're circling around this traumatic experience, which never goes away. And so mm. time doesn't matter. It could be like the moment after. It could be 30 years later. That trauma is still there for you. So you can't do a linear narrative if you're traumatized. Um, and so that's one reason why the book looks the way that it does, you know, it's a linear memoir beginning from A to Z, because I think I do want to deal with trauma and the way that it affects memory. And so in one sense, if you're traumatized, you think you have never forgotten the past because it's always there with you. But I think it's, it's like it exercises a kind of tremendous gravity, this, this terrible memory or this terrible experience. And so that can distort your memory. Mm -hmm. You know, one example, which is, uh, I actually, you know, at the core of this book is, what happened to my mother, right. incredible woman, and survived so many things, accomplished so many things. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, she also went to a psychiatric hospital three times that I'm aware yeah. of. Um, and the first time that I was really aware of it, you know, I, I wrote an essay about it in, in college. And then, um, you know, it was obviously very difficult for me to write see, about visiting my mother in the psychiatric facility. And then I put it into, I put it away for 30 years, didn't think about it very much. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, when I thought back to that visit to the psychiatric facility, I thought that happened when I was a little boy because that's how I felt terrified and ch- like a child. Then during the pandemic, I went back to the archive. I opened my, my box of papers. I looked at the essay that I wrote in college and I realized 
I was 19 when I wrote it. She, she went to that psychiatric facility when I was 18. Mm-hmm. So I was a young adult. And then as an adult, my memory completely changed that incident. I mean, I remember wow. what happened, but the facts had been so distorted that I, you know, totally changed the timeline of that. And so that was, that was my first clue that, that here was something that I remembered, but I had forgotten and repressed at the same time. And that's what the, you know, that's what the memoir had to dig into. Yeah. I think when we deal with parents too, we start with the mythology, you know, and, and part of uh, the journey is breaking up that mythology and seeing them as real people. Did you have that experience with uh, your relationship with dealing with how you felt about your parents or seeing what their journey was and seeing them, oh, these are actual people going through these things. These are, these aren't mythological figures right now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously when, when, as, as I got older, they got older too. So, yes. you know, gradually they no longer seem like these massive monuments in my life when I was five or 10 years old, mm-hmm. but they increasingly became, you know, real people. Like you said, you know, as a child, you're totally bonded with your parent, hopefully, and then you separate. And then as you separate, you get a different view on them, on their strengths and their weaknesses as well. And then when they get older, of course, the frailty, mm-hmm. you know, what also uh, happened was again i became a father and then watching my son grow up um it was the opportunity for me to see myself at his age and then therefore to also think about my parents you're right at that same time you know which i thought about before so self-centered i think the real trigger for that actually was when my son turned four it was 2017 and that was the, the time of the trump uh uh administration border policy at the southern border that you know, put families into detention camps, separated kids from their parents, lost the kids in the system, all these horrible things. And I, and I couldn't help but, you know, hear those stories about those children and their families and think about, um, and look at my son who was four and think about the time I was four in 1975, when we came to this country, I was separated from my parents in a refugee mm-hmm. camp um, for, for several months. And I was traumatized by that, you know, and uh, I remembered that. Uh, but I never thought about how my parents would have been affected by that. And so imagining myself in their situation and knowing that I would never be able to tolerate losing my son or having him taken away for any reason made me see them in a different light as well. But again, with all their strength, but also all their vulnerability as well. Do you think because of how your parents grew up, they just had a different relationship to that type of event? Hey, did you ever talk to them about that? Because I agree that had to have been a harrowing time to uh, can you give us more details about that? So when your parents came over here, they had to be sponsored. Was that what it was? So, you know, 130,000 Vietnamese people fled Vietnam in, in 1975 when right. Vietnam lost the war and they came to the United States, uh, were put into one of four refugee camps. We were mm-hmm. in Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And in order to leave the camp, you had to have an American sponsor you. And typically an American oh, okay. would sponsor a Vietnamese family or a church would sponsor a family. But no one was willing to sponsor all four of us. And apparently this was a very unusual experience. Wait, what does that mean, sponsor them exactly? Does it mean like if... If some shit goes down, we'll be responsible. <laughs> I think that is in fact the case. You know, I mean, right. you, you take, you, if you're an American family and you sponsor a Vietnamese refugee, yeah. family, or now an Afghan family, for example, yeah, you take them into your house, you, you, you okay. got through the Americanization process initially, like how do you get a driver's license? Oh, okay. Help them find a job. Right. 
So, so one sponsor took my parents for those reasons. And then one sponsor took my 10 year old brother and one sponsor took four year old me. Oh, wow. So you guys were kind of spread out. Yeah. And again, my first memories, my first real memories mm-hmm. are howling and screaming as I'm taken away from my parents. Wow. You know, you don't understand at four years of age, this is being done supposedly for your own benefit. Right. Yeah. So I was lucky though. I got to come home after three or four months. My brother, who was uh, seven years older, didn't get to come home for two years. And that, he said, he tells me, is how we know mom and dad love you more. (laughs) Why did it take so long? Do you know? You know, again, my family doesn't talk about this stuff. You know, like, I think we survived the experience by not talking about things, you know, Mm -hmm. highly functional adults in one way. He's very successful. Uh, And yet also, I think our emotional intimacy as a family was really kind of shattered in some ways by the refugee uh, experience and by not talking about so many things, this incident, but so many other things. And you asked me how my parents dealt with it. You know, I think when I look at their lives, they were born in the 1930s and they, by the time 1975 happened, they'd gone through 40 years of famine, colonization, being refugees twice, war. So this was a terrible experience, but, but, you know, becoming a refugee and coming to the United States and having their kids separated from them. But it was one in a long line of things Mm -hmm. that had already taken place. Yeah. It's, uh, interesting reading, um, how you, uh, you tend to focus on the word refugee more than immigrant too. Why is the word refugee so important? And, And give us some, uh, some texture around that, if you would. Well, we are a country of immigrants. That's our mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you can be a pro-immigrant American or an anti-immigrant American, but you're still focused on this idea that immigrants want to come to this country because, obviously, we're the greatest country on earth. That's the American dream. And so, immigrants can be welcomed. You know, if you introduce yourself to someone as an immigrant, I mean, many Americans will say, "Well, you know, hopefully, welcome to the country," but also. Tell us about your immigrant experiences and <laughs> overcame. And- if only it was, I don't think it was ever like that. <laughs> I think the whole history of immigration has always been those dirty immigrants. I think you could look at every period. There's always been those dirty immigrants. You know? That is true. Liberal Americans, however, like, you know, will, I think, say, you know, tell us about your immigrant story because you add to the texture and the fabric of the country and so on. Mm. Impulses exist, right? You know, dirty immigrants, but also welcome immigrants. And so at least Americans know the language around immigration one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a refugee, even to liberals, can potentially be less human. Okay. And refugees are very frightening. I think we can sort of manage immigration through laws and systems and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Refugees are in the millions and they're being displaced by all kinds of things like wars and economic and climate catastrophes and so on. And I think Americans, number one, don't want to think about refugees because we've created a lot of refugees through our policies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, many, 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 many ways. And then number two, we are afraid of refugees because I think we don't want to become refugees. So, for example, uh, Vietnamese refugees come in 1975. Some of them moved to Louisiana in uh, 30 years later, or yeah, 2005, Hurricane Katrina happens. Mm-hmm. All of these people are displaced. Um, many of them are African-Americans. And some in the American media call, call these displaced people refugees. Mm-hmm. And George Bush, president at the time, says it's un-American to call these people refugees. And Jesse Jackson, I think, for the first time in history, agrees with George Bush. Mm -hmm. It's racist to call black people refugees. And so black or white Americans 
cannot comprehend any relationship between the greatest country on earth and refugees. We supposedly can't produce refugees. And so therefore, refugees are really alien. They become a crisis. Um, and Americans just don't know what to do with them. Uh, and so when Americans do welcome refugees, the narrative again is we're, we're taking these refugees in and that's because we're great and the refugees should be grateful. And so that puts refugees who come to the United States in a very awkward position. And I think that's why so many refugees choose to call themselves immigrants instead to disguise themselves and not to get themselves em embroiled in these controversies today. Because even today, you know, uh, we only talk about refugees in terms of crisis, that they are a crisis mm -hmm. and that reflects attention away from how we are the ones who are oftentimes creating the crisis. I mean, you could argue America was started by refugees. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that the, the pilgrims are the original boat people. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I mean, well, like they call Absolutely. boat people and the whole perception of boat people was I remember that. negative, right? V there were victims, were desperate, yeah. but you know, and then we were, there were like the people, the people, the world over remember Vietnamese boat people because there are these terrible pictures of overcrowded mm. fishing boats. Right. But pilgrims were lucky because when they showed up in the so-called new world, the indigenous people didn't have cameras. Yeah. They didn't have iPhones. I'm pretty yeah. sure the pilgrims getting off that boat after yeah. many months looked pretty bad. It is funny because when you say, immigrants, you know, refugees, but then for black people, we were the kidnapped, which is a whole different category, you know, of being in that never, never land of our relationship to America. And we always kind of have permission to be critics, you know, but still, you know, we've always expressed love for this country. And, and it's funny that um, the critique of America has always been equated with hating America, which I never understood, you know, like who has the right to critique the country? And like, I'm willing to bet your parents never critiqued America. They critiqued Americans probably, but never America. Right. Yeah. But you feel like you have permission to critique America. Because yeah, I'm an American. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like that was not passed down. You know, well, I mean, towards the end of the, in a man of two faces, I do you know, quote the famous James Baldwin. Yes. You know, I, 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 I love America and therefore I reserve the right to, to criticize it perpetually. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right attitude, obviously. Um, and, you know, yes, my parents, obviously my, my parents' generation, when they came to the United States, they understood that their place here was extremely fragile. And so they had to be very careful. I will tell you though, that in Vietnamese, there was a lot of criticism of the United States, people in speaking in Vietnamese, but they knew that Americans couldn't understand Vietnamese. You know, it's the idea that if you go to the, the, the nail salon and by the way, you know, Vietnamese people, uh, are, are more than 50% of the nail salon industry in this country. And so the idea is, oh my God, we don't know what these Vietnamese people are speaking when they're just <laughs> pedicures. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that was actually happening. I'm not, not necessarily in the nail salon, but you know, there were, there were some older Vietnamese people who were upset that they felt that the United States had betrayed them in 1975, said we would always mm. stand with you. And, and in the end, that wasn't true. And the, 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 the way that that finally emerged into English was with the, the fall of Kabul. And the New York Times Magazine ran a profile of, of older South Vietnamese veterans in their 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. Marines, paratroopers, this kind of thing. And these men finally said in English, we were betrayed by the United States. Mm. And that's what we're doing to Afghans. So that, that it took, you know, nearly 50 years before the Vietnamese of that generation could say that in English. Uh, for me, I grew up in this country since I was four. I feel myself to be deeply American. 
Um, but I also feel myself to be connected to the world outside because of my origins in Vietnam and the refugee experience and the, the empathy I feel for, uh, for, for any country that's been bombed, uh, by the United States. And so that, that puts me in a different, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. But you know, I take, I take American ideals seriously, justice, democracy, free speech, and all of those things. If we believe in those things, then that applies not only to what we say about other countries and the, the, the failures that, that they engage in, but our own failures as Americans as well. It's interesting that you not only quote Baldwin, but as a comedian, I appreciate all your references to Richard Pryor <laughs> in the book, uh, and his takes on certainly that time, you know, there's that pecking order of racial hierarchy that people go through. And there was tension and it came out in that uh, Rodney King ride a lot, but tension between immigrant Asian communities and the black communities, especially during that time when you grew up, you know, and it's interesting how you draw though on a lot of black authors, Ellison, Baldwin, Du Bois, you know, comedians like Richard Pryor, did you feel a connection to the black identity or black community growing up? Or is this something that has come to you recently, this connection? Um, because there wasn't, this wasn't always a harmonious thing, you know. You know, I grew up in San Jose, California, and I think the black population of San Jose today is 3%. And that was quite true when I was growing up there as well. There weren't very many um, African-Americans that I encountered. So where I saw African-Americans was in popular culture. You know? It's another pimp and a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you also got something of a panoply of black culture when you're watching from a distance and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It comes about black life and, and so on. But, you know, what really changed for me was um, when I started reading black literature in, in college, you know, mm. Ellison, Toni Morrison, uh, many, many other authors, huge influences on me. Also, writers of the black diaspora or, you know, the global black world. Um, so I also quote Amy Césaire and France Fanon, for example, in the book as well. And they have some very critical things to say about the United States and, and colonialism. And so, you know, I think when I started reading black authors, obviously my experience is not black experience, but there's that overlap, you know, of understanding that um, the country has failed in its ideals in so many ways uh, towards black people, but then also towards other people as well. And, you know, what I took away from the most powerful of black writers was the sense that uh, this country is built on a contradiction, a deep contradiction that we have never escaped, which is that contradiction between our ideals as a country, which are true, and then the founding of the country in enslavement, colonization, genocide, all these horrible things that I think are still with us today. And so I think the reading Black literature, it was really powerful because, again, writers like Toni Morrison just zeroed in on that contradiction and didn't let it go. And, and mm-hmm. I do that in my own way from our, my experience. And then to get to this whole tension between the, the tensions that have surfaced and resurfaced between um, African-Americans and Asian immigrants, you know, my feeling is that... Uh, it's divide and conquer. That's how racism and colonialism work. People focus on their own individual grievances and pit them against each other. And uh, someone like Pryor, Richard Pryor, I think gets it, you know, in, in, in his own way. Like, I can't say what he said in the book. I, 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 I can't say it. You know, but, but in 1975, Richard Pryor had a whole skit. I mean... You know, Listen, and they, I don't know. If he wasn't lying. You know, he wasn't lying. Vietnamese right. people are the new right. people, and uh, it was very funny because it's painfully true. But I think, I think he was sort of wrong. He was wrong. Yeah, he ultimately was wrong. Uh, I think for a fleeting moment, the attention seemed to be diverted. You know, or whatever. Like blacks have always felt like 
if Asians either adopted white racism or just agreed with it ahead of time. You know? I think Asian Americans, you know, have to confront our embrace of white supremacy. I'm not saying everyone does it, but I think right. that a considerable uh, portion of the community that does. And even if we don't, I mean, there is a passive alignment with white folks or, or white supremacy that happens quite often. So I think it's actually really necessary for Asian Americans to speak out against that and to, to articulate where we stand. But you know, the reason, you know, I mean, later on, for example, like when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened, there was that brief moment when African-American comedians was like, you know, Arabs are the new Blacks, and you know now we get a little twisted <laughs> from. Always. Oh, it just shows you the position. Even John Lennon had "woman is the blank of the world," you know, I mean, way before that. So why do we always have to be the you know identity for the lowest on the rung in terms of the uh, the social strata? Yeah, but also you know I think the reason I think Richard Pryor was a little bit wrong was because eventually Vietnamese Americans, in fact, uh, a good portion of us. Uh, stop being that target mm-hmm. and, and yeah. a, uh, a part of the mainstream in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, you know, Vietnamese Americans doing all kinds of things, but he also sort of misidentified um, the, the, the Southeast Asians that were most vulnerable mm. to being aligned with African-Americans in the American nation. And that was really uh, from my thinking, the Hmong, the Hmong uh, were this stateless people in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. in Laos who were uh, divided in the war, but you know a lot of them fought with the Americans, right. and then you know were became refugees, came to the United States. Mm-hmm. In 2015, the poverty rate for the Hmong, ref- Hmong Americans and Hmong refugees is about 27 percent, I think, mm-hmm. and black poverty rate was like 25 percent. So, mm-hmm. and then you know that's where we see this alignment of race and class and yeah. uh, being marginalized uh, in terms of Southeast Asians with the mom. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed 
my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. One of the reasons why I was excited to speak with you, man, is um, I appreciate you talking about American films, too, you know, because I think there's so much misinformation and disinformation and, and ignorance I'm included in this as Americans about Vietnam and the different regions and, you know, about the people. And, you know, you get these images from arguably great movies, too, for different reasons, you know. But, you know, very distinct images, particularly of Vietnamese women, you know, and, you know, their roles and that type of thing. Um, did you have an experience of those movies at the time? Was it something later on you looked back on? Like, were you old enough to see Full Metal Jacket and some of those films at the time, or well, old enough? No, <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a VCR in the 1980s. That's how I watched these movies. And, yes, yes, yes that's and of course, my parents were too busy running their grocery store to think about what their kid was watching on the VCR. But um, yeah, I saw Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, these are these are great works of art. I mean, the best of them are. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's uh, Apocalypse Now was inspired by Heart of Darkness. And in Heart of Darkness, it's a great anti-racist, anti-colonial story. But it also, mm -hmm. you know, depends on totally silencing Black Africans at the same time. And I think Apocalypse Now does the same thing uh, with Vietnamese people. I'm not singling out Apocalypse Now. I think that's true for the almost the entire genre of American Vietnam War movies. And I watched almost all of them, which is an exercise I recommend yeah. to no one. Especially. I'm going through my head right now thinking, did any of them get them kind of right? Or I don't know. It's a tough one. That whole, like a 15 year period of those films. Uh, like, I think some of the documentaries like Hearts and Minds, mm -hmm. By uh, Peter Davies got it right, you know, and that mm. won Oscar in 1974 and was deeply controversial for how critical it was of the United States. Sure. Its depiction of Vietnamese people, and there are depiction of Vietnamese people. But the endurance of America, the United States, seeing this war as a civil war in the American soul, in which mm. Vietnamese people and other Southeast Asians are the extras, despite the fact that it's our country, you know. Right. It, you see it in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, and I'm a huge admirer of Spike Lee's movies. I love his work, but I think he got it wrong. Yeah, I never saw that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about, Afri you know, black soldiers, veterans, and the trauma they underwent in the war in Vietnam, which is a real thing. Uh, but then okay. they go back 30 years later to recover gold that they left behind there. Um, and it's, you know, it's a little bit better in its treatment of Vietnamese people. But again, it just focuses on the civil war in the American soul, in this case, the black American soul. And, uh, you know, Vietnamese people, again, are just sort of rendered marginal uh, to that. Yeah. Have you been to Vietnam yourself? Have you uh, visited there? Have you come to any terms with the Vietnam as a country, as a home, as a place? I went back in 2002, 27 mm. years later, after I left as a refugee for the first time in 2002. And the last time was in 2014. So I went many times in, in that 12 year span. And um, I think I it was very challenging for me because most mm -hmm. of my family, extended family is still in Vietnam. Many of them are poor. Vietnamese is, you know, it's my Vietnamese is so good that when I go go to Vietnam, people say, your Vietnamese is so good. For a Korean. For a Korean. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. I think of it as a compliment. But anyway, 
So it was challenging, but uh, I, I've made my peace with the country in the sense that you know I I, um, I don't have any ill feeling towards the communist regime or anything. But the feeling is not mutual. Okay, so you know there's a TV series being made uh, of my novel, The Sympathizer, but we weren't allowed to shoot that in Vietnam uh, because the authorities thought it was the novel was. Uh, an inaccurate portrayal of the Vietnamese revolution. Most of my books are not allowed to be translated into Vietnamese for the same reason. And I haven't been back since 2014 because of that fraught um, political relationship to my work. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's mixed feelings because um, I think the Vietnamese people and the government have every right to, to determine the future of the country and, and all of that. Um, but then at the same time, uh, it's also a kind of a, it's a very repressive, country politically and um you know writers are thrown into jail for very very minor kinds of offenses like being critical of the country's environmental policy for example um it's hard for me to reconcile with that dimension of vietnam yeah that authoritarian streak is is there any uh relationship with uh any attitude towards france because of course you know the french uh uh colonial presence was there for so long we forget about that because of the American war and everything, you know. I, I think the French got off easy in terms they of did. the French did. <laughs> did. The French got out of town, man. They got off. They got off really easy. That was a good over a hundred years, I believe. They were in Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, roughly. You know, the irony about the American war was that Americans recorded it all: photographs, TV. Mm news and then all these movies really imprinted upon the world uh the sense that it was a bad war the american war in vietnam mm-hmm. in terms of the french they did her- they did terrible things okay i mean the vietnamese revolutionary revolutionaries used the language of slavery to describe mm-hmm. colonialism. we're the slaves and we're going to revolt uh but the french you know they they only had black and white photographs and it looks over very romantic and everything and and so they got away you know so now you know popular memories of the french in indochina is that it was kind of a romantic time mm. and even the french have, have forgotten about it uh because they're obsessed with the algerian war that took place right after which is their dirty war and this contemporary uh divisions and challenges around uh muslims and arabs in france and all these kinds of questions totally overshadow anything they did in indochina so when i wrote the sympathizer it's very much about the american war and i wanted to offend everybody you know yes. and i succeeded judging by my hate mail yes congratulations well done <laughs> when i wrote the sequel I, admitted it, I thought who else is there left to offend yeah and the answer was the french and so, you know, that's where the novel is set in Paris. It's interesting. I'm, I've been more into history lately. I think as you get older, you get more interested in history for whatever reason. Uh, but it is interesting how cultural memory can shift. You know, it's not permanent. You know, like that's a great example. I mean, the French were there for so long and there's almost no cultural memory or stamp or feeling about that anymore. You know, when I look at Iran, you know, it's all Ayatollah time. You know, there's no Shah feeling like about Iran or when you see photos of what Iran looked like before then, it's like, when, when was this taken? You know, it's so different. It's fascinating to me how cultural memory can change, but it's, you know, people are still formed by that in some way. You know, it's, it's still in the DNA in some way. Yeah. I mean, I feel that. Uh, as critical as I am of the French, for example, and what they did, um, you know, I, I also feel totally 
mentally colonized by the French. I hear the French language, I get weak in the knees. You know, they could be saying, okay. <laughs> Pepe Le Pew comes at you. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the French legacy is present all over Vietnamese culture. You know, French food influence a lot of contemporary Vietnamese uh, cuisine. So uh, the cultural memory that you're talking about, on the one hand, you know, I think we can sort of conceptually understand French colonization, not a good thing. But then the overwhelming feeling is we still love, we still love Paris. We still love France. Yeah, there's no penalty to be paid is what I'm saying, you know, and rightly so. I mean, U.S., <laughs> all the arrows are pointed, but <laughs> France is like, nope, nope, no penalty. Just give us more crepes here and uh, a few more croissants and we'll be good. Mm. I mean, the American legacy is like Coke and hamburgers and bad movies. And the French legacy is like, again, sophistication, you know, so it's no wonder why it's so seductive. Yeah. Exactly. You know, uh, you use that term American dream a lot in your book. Does that have a meaning for you? And is that separate from your parents also? Is it a negative for you, a positive? You know, the, uh, the language of the American dream is like the word America itself. I think it's impossible for most Americans to say either of those things, American dream or America, and not automatically get uh, the, the example of cultural memory that you use, not automatically just get locked into this mindset. Mm -hmm. and, and it represents something specific in that memory. Absolutely. Right? You know, and, and it doesn't matter whether you're saying American dream ironically or unironically. So if you say unironically, you're a flag waving patriot, you know, and, and we're the greatest country on earth and we can bomb anybody we want and all that. If you're a liberal and you say it ironically, you mean, well, we know we do some terrible things, but nevertheless, we are this multicultural welcoming democracy and we are on a path towards a more perfect union. Uh, but you, but whether you're liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, when you say American dream, you mean we're the greatest country on earth. Um, I'm much more skeptical of that, <laughs> uh, which is why uh -huh. I say America or American dream, they're in all caps and there's a trademark symbol. Yes. Because I think we have in fact trademarked those ideas uh, because our fundamental religion in this country is capitalism and we own the American dream in America. And, uh, you know, I say in the book, I think the American dream is a euphemism for settler colonialism because we wouldn't have all these things that we talk about, opportunity and 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 uh, the middle class lifestyle and all that, if we hadn't colonized this country and if we aren't still colonizing this country, which is the perspective of indigenous peoples. that's And that's a perspective that I think a lot of uh, Americans would have a hard time confronting and grappling with. Yeah, I find it to be more layered than that. I think that's. Sure, that's one aspect of it. But, you know, like I said, I've been dealing with history. I can't think of any society that didn't colonize another one or, or take over another society from Romans taking over the Greeks to the Ottoman Empire, getting rid of Byzantium. You know, every almost every society has like conquered, you know, the previous one and many times have uh, employed some of the things about that previous one into their own and that sort of thing. Um, I think what makes this place different is that it did represent something different that we hadn't quite seen before in the world in terms of a destination. That's what makes it different to me. You know, there's never quite been a destination that people had that represented a liberation for them or an opportunity or this sort of thing. And to me, American dream was more about the few, it represents the past to me now, but I think it, the power of the American dream to me lay more in the, promise that it held 
more so than in the stories that it had to tell. Yeah, I wanted, really, really wanted to grapple with that complexity in the book because you're absolutely right that um, <laughs> everybody colonizes or most people colonize. And if you go back... I, far I don't enough, know a place that hasn't. Right. If you go back far enough, you know, most places are founded upon, uh, you know, killing somebody else that was already there. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the thing is that also, therefore, the next step is we're going to deny that we did those things. That's also very universal. Like, you know, most nations are founded on violence and then most nations will say, well, you know, we, we had to do it to the, whoever was there before us and we're still a great country. So well, it used to be, they own the violence. I mean, it's, it's a current phenomenon that people don't want to talk about the violence, but it used to be a badge of honor that you killed people. You know, yeah, know Vikings, you yeah, yeah, oh, that was a badge of honor. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you right. kidding me? Right. Yeah. We want to know that you killed a lot of people. <laughs> but modern nation states, you know, in yes. the last century, no, you're not supposed to say that. We know we kill and rape and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we take land, but we're not supposed to say that. Or, you know, if we did do that, it's all because for good reasons, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I try to be, you know, interrogate my own history in that regard. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I talk about how I think Vietnam, uh, if you go to Vietnam and, you know, people will very tell you very quickly, we were colonized by the Chinese for a thousand years. So the Chinese did all these terrible things to us and everything. I've met very few Vietnamese people who are willing to say, you know, modern Vietnam was built upon colonization too. You know, we took over mm-hmm. the land of the Cham and the Cambodians. And and uh, and in my case, my family's case, I, I try to think about how my parents were refugees in 1954 when the country was divided from north to south. They came south with 800,000 other Vietnamese Catholics. And then they were uh, subsidized by the South Vietnamese government, which was subsidized mm-hmm. by the American government. My parents were given some money. They bought some land in the Central Highlands, which is the land of indigenous peoples. So does that make us colonizers? I think so. And so it's not just simply holding America responsible. It's holding you know, Vietnam and my people responsible too. And I think that's the crucial step. I think that's where a lot of Americans, when you criticize them or you criticize the United States, they get very defensive and they say, you know, but look at these other places and what they've done. And I do look at other places and what they've done. And so I think our task is to, uh, you know, not to, not to say, you know, uh, we're better than, than other countries, but again, to try to hold ourselves responsible for our own ideals and to recognize, you know, I recognize the compl- the complexity that if I was in Vietnam saying these things about the Vietnamese government, I'd be in jail. So here, you know, I get to say it. And that is, I think, something that is unique about the United States. No, the ability to criticize by far is one of the more powerful aspects of living in a country with the, a free press, you know, um, more so than almost any other right. You know, uh, I feel, you know, that abil- ability for you and I to have this conversation and be critical of the place we live in you know, or the powers that be. Um, that also is a is a new thing. You know, I think in history, you know, good luck uh, saying something bad about the king you know, or the emperor or whatever. Even if the jester didn't quite make the emperor laugh, you know, you suffered death or whatever. An emotional part of this uh, book, very emotional, uh, is you writing about your mom. And you even said this book ultimately is about your mom. Um, why was it important for you to tell us the story of your of your dying mother too, not just your mom, but you know, this, the story of her death. Well, it's, you know, one reason why the book is subtitle, one of the part of the subtitle is a memorial. Um, you know, so it mm. is a memorial to my mother and, you know, to my father, he's, he's, he's 90. Um, he's lived a long and good life, but you know, he's fading too. So mm. uh, we're at the tail end here of, uh, of his life. And I think it was important to write this, 
book partly to acknowledge them, especially my mother and everything she had she had gone through. Because who else was going to acknowledge them? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know part of the you know when we talk talk about the the Vietnamese refugee community and maybe other refugee and immigrant communities um, within the, these communities, there's oftentimes for the older generations a, a sense of frustration, perhaps that their stories are not being told. I mean, they can tell the mm-hmm. Vietnamese, for example, but who's going to listen? Maybe even their children can't understand them because their children yeah. are speaking Americans. And then uh, it falls onto people like my gener, people of my generation, to tell their stories. And of course, they they could probably be very resentful of us. Right. The book tries to confront all of that. Um, my own complicity in mm-hmm. uh, betraying my mother's confidences, but also taking on the the role of speaking for her as well. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I I say you know I'm betraying her, uh, but you know her love for me. The fact that she was a, a someone who always encouraged me and nurtured me, gave me the confidence to be a writer, and then gave me the confidence to portray her and betray her at the same time. So it's a wow. very complicated kind of acknowledgement uh, that implicates me, but it's an act of love. And I, I do think that, um, you know, a lot of the book is and is angry because I'm an angry person. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, yeah, but Baldwin, yeah. Baldwin, the same thing. I think he was angry, yeah. also loving. And I think those two things can mutually coexist. And it was important to talk about my mother as an act of love. It's very moving. I have to say it's one of the most moving parts of the book. And I think because it's so straightforward, too, in a way, it's it's almost observational, uh, just even talking about just the manner in which the priest delivers rights and everything, you know, it really struck me as a Catholic too, just knowing how sometimes Catholicism can seem just so going through the motions and all that kind of stuff, you know, and you're like, well, you know, know, what's going on here? You know, I was raised in Catholic schools. Uh, Somehow I came out an atheist, but I, I also think I've totally absorbed Catholicism, you know, so the, the suffering, the sacrifice, the redemption, the justice, all these things. And, um, you know, I think that when you're, look, when you're a Catholic or a human being, no matter what, you, you hopefully will have a moment because it's a complicated moment of watching your parents leave. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously terrible, but at the same time, it's a blessing to be there for them and to be mm-hmm. with them at that moment. And so, yes, the book towards the end looks at the moment of my mother's, um, my mother's death, uh, in uh in a on a hospital bed in our family room because we brought her home and it was a, it was a, obviously a sad and ter- painful moment but it was a moment in which my mother's my mother's last words were the lord's prayer with my father they prayed together and i knew then that the power how powerful her faith was to her because you know she was she had forgotten so many things but she never forgot the lord's prayer wow my father today my father's memory is fading but you say the lord's prayer instantly he would mm-hmm. cite the entire Lord's Prayer. They did this every night of their lives, and it stayed with them to the moment of their to the moment of my mother's death. And then the the last words she said before the Lord's Prayer were to my father in Vietnamese, uh, "I love you." Mm. You know that's that's that was wonderful uh, for me to be able to witness that. Wow, hmm. you're getting you're getting us all uh, choked up. <laughs> Do you think? She had ever said that they had ever said that to each other, knowing they're culturally that age group and all that stuff. Is is that what do, do you have a guess on that? Yeah, you know, the stereotype obviously is that we yeah. don't say I love you. 
sure. those of us who are Asians and so but you know I, whenever I say that there's always like white people who say no we don't say that either <laughs> yeah, <We're right>. German. <laughs> yeah well, you're talking about wasps <laughs> yeah. uh, but no I think they did uh, I think they did you know my mother was incapacitated for the last 13 years of her life and my father in his 70s and 80s took care of her for 10 of those 13 years before he finally became too old to do it mm. so she totally recognized that mm-hmm. yeah I think I think that's uh, that's uh, uh, one of the blessings in my life is that you know my parents were actually uh, even when they weren't suffering through work when they finally got over that part they were actually very affectionate and loving people so when you finally do the movie of this book because you know you're just a mogul out here be it, you know you got movies going on all this stuff from your books but is this book going to be the story of your parents when it's a movie I mean, Larry, we live in L.A. When I tell people in L.A. that I'm a writer, no one cares. <laughs> I care. I love this story. I find it beautiful. I really do. I mean that sincerely. You know, I love the, by the way, I love the pictures. I love seeing the pictures of your mom, you know, when she was younger. Just a gorgeous woman, you know. I love the journey stories, you know. That whole period of them coming over and you in Harrisburg, all this stuff. That's fascinating movie stuff, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I do say in the book that I think if this ever were a movie, it would be a, you know, a low budget Asian American <laughs> film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, but Hollywood, if you're listening, Hollywood, if you're listening, yeah, let's, let's do you, the blockbuster. You'd have to do a genre switch to have it be a, a bloody thriller, too, at the same time. Yeah. Uh, well, I really appreciate you uh, taking time out to talk because your book really is, it really is a revelation. Such an interesting uh, take on this type of thing. A man of two faces. Do you think? Uh, do you think your kids will have two faces? Um, I do probably. Don't we all have two faces in some ways? Uh, I have a lot of faces. I feel like I've got about five or six. I yeah. think. I think that's just a part of the <laughs> the human relationship between parents and children. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. A man of two faces, you guys. Vietnian. It's. Uh, I mean, he's got one Pulitzer. You never know. This could be uh, in the running. You never know. Hey, good luck with the rest of the book tour. And it's so nice. It's so great meeting you. Thanks so much, Larry. Such a pleasure to talk to you. We'll have to get some coffee here in Pasadena sometime. Hey, dude, I'm right down the street. (laughs) This is crazy. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Larry. 